Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. The judges of this state may tranquilly condemn us for our conduct at that time, but history, the goddess of a higher truth and a better legal code, will smile as she tears up this verdict and will acquit us all of the crime for which this verdict demands punishment. But history will then also summon before its own tribunal those who, invested with power today, have trampled on law and justice, condemning our people to misery and ruin, and who, in the hour of their country's misfortune, took more account of their own egos than of the life of the community. That was failed postcard artist, former corporal in the Bavarian army and leader of the Nazi party, Adolf Hitler, defending himself at his trial in the spring of 1924 for attempting to overthrow the Weimar Republic. And Dominic, in the first part of our um, epic sweep through the rise of the Nazis, we looked at the background to the emergence of the, of the Nazi party. And the Beer Hall Putsch is a kind of famous way marker in that story, and we'll come to that. But um, before we do that, let's look at the background to the Beer Hall Putsch uh, and to Hitler's contempt for the legal and political structures that are governing Germany at this time. Um, and it's those structures are kind of basically summed up by that phrase, Weimar Republic. So what is the Weimar Republic? Where's Weimar? What's going on? Okay. Uh, big questions, Tom. So yes. Um, hello, everybody. We left Hitler last time, didn't we? At the beginning of the 1920s, the head of this very small, frankly, quite cranky political party in Munich, not a major national force by any means. I mean, Hitler, a former nobody who has found his voice. And I suppose, Tom, it would be fair to say that without the weakness of the Weimar Republic, there is no Third Reich. There is no you know, national socialist tyranny. There's nothing of that kind. And the question that therefore hangs over this episode of the podcast is, is the failure of the Weimar Republic inevitable? Is it doomed from the very beginning? I mean, one issue is that nobody really had had sort of set out to create it or wanted to set it up. So last time we talked about the end of the First World War in Germany, how it all happened so suddenly in the early days of November 1918, you know, in a matter of a, a handful of days, there are mutinies and rebellions and uprisings. The Kaiser disappears off into exile. Their sort of governing structures seem to fall apart. And amid all this chaos, the man who's really emblematic of the Weimar Republic, Friedrich Ebert, who is the leader of the S SPD, the Social Democratic Party, he basically seizes the moment to try and create a new structure. And he does that actually not because he's des he desperately wants to, Ebert was a monarchist. He famously said to Prince Max of Baden, he hated the idea of, of a social and political revolution. He said, I hate it like sin. But also, Dominic, isn't, I mean, isn't the reason why, why it's in Weimar, which is the hometown of Goethe, is that it's, it's kind of looking back to a time when 
German, Germany was famous not for its armies and its militarism, but for its culture, its learning, its scholarship. Exactly. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, so it's looking back to the early 19th century, mid 19th century, the, the failed revolutions of 1848. Um, so this liberal tradition. Ebert is Ebert is leader of the Social Democrats, but he is not um, a sort of hardcore Marxist or a hardcore revolutionary or anything of the kind. Not in any you way could, a Führer. No, you could almost see him as a kind of German Clement Attlee for our British listeners. So he's very patriotic. He's very sort of pragmatic. Um, he makes an alliance with the Centre Party, which is the Catholic Party, and with the Liberals in 1918-19, and with the army, and with the army high command. They all agree, listen... The threat of revolution amid the shock of defeat is so great. We have to get this thing together, stabilize it. So they meet in Weimar, which, as you say, is identified with the greatest German writer, Goethe. And they put together a constitution for this republic. And the constitution, it's against the backdrop of all that fighting and the, the Spartacist uprising, as you mentioned, Rosa Luxemburg and Marxists being shot out of hand and stuff. So Dominic, Ma- Michael Burley... Uh, yeah. who, a, another of the kind of the great British historians yes. of, of, of this, he has a brilliant description for the mood in Germany. He describes it as a dreadful mass sentimentality compounded of anger, fear, resentment, and self-pity. And that's a, a kind of brilliant, brilliant way of summing up the, the background against which the, the founders of the Weimar Republic are working and the kind of headwinds that they're moving into. Yes. And actually, would those headwinds have been different in France or Britain had we lost the First World War? I don't think they would, actually. I think if it had been a, sh- a similarly shattering experience, that we would have had exactly the same blend, or at least a similar blend yeah. in London or in, or in Paris. Yeah. So the constitution they come up with is a little bit like Bismarck's Reich. Yeah, the army and the president are sort of set slightly apart from democratic politics. The president has this, this power. He has these emergency powers under what's called Article 48 of the constitution. That if necessary, he can rule by decree and use the army to enforce his will. But in normal times, it will be the Reichstag, the, the, the assembly of the parliament, it will be the majority in the Reichstag who, who basically control the government. Now, even at this point, because it's born in such chaos, Abbott uses um, this emergency power a lot. He uses it 136 times, in fact, always saying, there's so much disorder, I have to use it, I have to step in, I have to use the army which I think often he does, actually, to be quite frank, because there's so much chaos. The problem, of course, is that that establishes a precedent, which is that basically the Reichstag and the president are set against each other. And if necessary, the president will always intervene against the wishes of, of democratic But again, that's very much an inheritance from before the war. It the is Wilhelmine indeed. State. It is indeed. Yeah. But the difference is that everybody thought that the Wilhelmine state was legitimate. Nobody ever questioned whether the Kaiser's Reich was, was a legitimate expression of kind of German politics. But the Weimar Republic is absolutely tainted from the very beginning because, of course, it's associated with defeat. It's, it's a product of defeat. So Germany has not just been defeated in the First World War. It's lost 13% of its national territory. So Alsace-Lorraine, the Saarland becomes a sort of French protectorate. The Rhineland is demilitarized. It's lost Western Poland, which is now part of the new uh, Polish Republic. The, the, the Germans feel outraged at that. They're, they're outraged because they say the Allies are a load of hypocrites and liars because the Allies go around talking about self-determination, but they won't let the Austrian Germans join with the other Germans in Germany. So 
everybody, both in Austria and in Germany, is very upset at that. Because the problem for France and Britain and the Allies generally is that Germany remains potentially the richest and therefore the most militarily significant power in Central yes. Europe. And so yeah. to allow a defeated Germany to end up with an even larger population would obviously totally go against. But, it, of, but course. of course, it's hypocrisy. It's pure hypocrisy. Agreed. I mean, that's why Austria exists to this day. Yeah. Austria wouldn't otherwise exist. Um, they also, as you said, that, that, that terror of sort of, of German power. So there are strict limits on the German army and navy. They can't have tanks. They can't have artillery. They can only have a hundred thousand men. The Germans are very offended by this. Um, they think it's sort of unsporting. They're not being allowed to compete, as it were. And of course, the Germans have to pay reparations. They have to accept that they were guilty for the for the First yeah. World War, and they have to pay 132 billion gold marks, as well as loads of coal and and and, and hand over loads of railway engines and ships. Now. Some people listening to this podcast will say, well, the Germans were guilty for the, of the First World War. Not all historians would say that. And you can bet your bottom dollar, very, very few Germans would have said that right. at the end of the First World War. And so the only explanation, therefore, for lots of Germans, patriotic Germans, to explain what's happening is that the people who have signed up to this, the Weimar politicians, are traitors, that they are complicit in the stab in the back. Exactly right. Because as we said last time, a lot of Germans just didn't see the defeat coming. They had been told right up to the end that they were winning the war. And they thought when the, they'd their army had launched that great offensive in 1918, this is going to win us the war. Then when it doesn't work out, they are shocked and surprised. And the only explanation seems to be betrayal. The pro a, a key problem in this, by the way, is that the army commanders, particularly General Ludendorff, went around telling everybody that they'd been stabbed in the back, which Ludendorff must have known was a lie. You know, to cover themselves, to, because they don't want to admit we were just beaten, plain and square. So, so that's a huge issue for the for Weimar. In fact, the army generally is never very reliable um, in supporting. Army. So, the army still keeps its old sort of Kaiser's colours of uh, black, red, and white. It doesn't have the the, the colours that we associate with Germany today, which are the Weimar colours, which are black, red, and gold. The army is still very monarchist. The army is ignoring the Versailles Treaty. You know, there are a lot of people in the army who basically can't wait to get rid of this new Weimar Republic. They think it's completely illegitimate. And what about the civil service? Same thing. Because, of course, a lot of civil servants are former military people. So if you were in the army under the Kaiser, you got preference for state jobs. So post, even postmen, you know, um, state-employed, I don't know, janitors or whatever, they're often former military men. So the, all these people, you know, the people, the bureaucrats who are basically carrying out the Weimar Republic's instructions, a lot of them think this is a load of kind of dodgy lefty traitors uh, who have sold us down the river and the whole thing is illegitimate and I can't wait for it to go away. So the Weimar is very, has lots of governments rising and falling because it has endless coalitions. I think it has 20 different cabinets between 1919 and 1933. So there's constant coalition building. But some of the biggest parties in Germany never accept the Weimar Republic. An obvious example is the communists. So the communists in the mid-1920s are getting you know, three to four million votes. They're absolutely explicit about it. They think it's a bourgeois capitalist construct. They can't, yeah. yeah, racket, exactly. Running dogs of, uh, of, of capitalism. Can't wait to sweep it away. But the nationalists, so that's the biggest sort of right-wing group, the big, bigger than any other group except for the social democrats, they, again, are absolutely explicit. They say, bring back the Second Reich, bring back the Kaiser, 
They wave the old flags. The biggest cheese in nationalist politics, who was a press baron called Alfred Hugenberg, he's drunk very deeply of all this stuff in the 1880s and 1890s, pan-Germanism, social Darwinism, Nietzsche, Lebensraum, anti-Semitism. He's very, very extreme. He's always shouting about Judum, all of this business. So in other words, from the start, so left and right. right, there are loads of people who want Weimar to fail. And I think it, most historians would say, even with a fair wind, this was a pretty fragile construction with an awful lot of people who it ought to have been able to rely on who want it to who regard it as an affront as tainted and they want it to fall apart and of course as we'll see it never does get a fair wind there is actually another element i thought would which would interest you tom because you're interested in ideas and ideology which is the ideas and the sort of ideological and cultural swirl of the 1920s i think plays a part in discrediting Weimar, because this is an age, I mean, we talk about culture wars in, I mean, it seems ludicrous to talk about culture wars in 21st century Britain. When you think about the kind of culture wars in the in 20s Germany, you know, everything from expressionist films and nightclubs yeah. and jazz. And- yeah. So, so, so it's cabaret, isn't it? I mean, that's the, for English speakers, that's the, the image of it. Yeah. Or um, have you ever seen, there's a TV series called Babylon Berlin. Yeah, big fan. I yeah. men- I've mentioned this before on the podcast. Absolutely brilliant. So it's all that sort of image that you have of kind of decadence, cross-dressing decadence yes. in Berlin nightclubs, yeah. in cellars, people listening to jazz and swing and um, all getting off with each other and drinking cocktails and um, talking to Bertolt Although Brecht. Apparently, and- apparently the favorite drink uh, among Weimar politicians it wasn't cocktails. It was um, liquid yogurt. I read it in Michael Burley's book. So it must be I true. Didn't realize, I didn't realize uh, <laughs> he was so strong on yogurt. Uh, yeah, apparently this, this was the, the taste of Weimar. But the, the, other, the other thing that is happening, though, is incredible street violence. Yeah. And that presumably is an inheritance from, well, the kind of the militarized society that, that Germany was during the First World War, but also this kind of, you know, the, the way that you have street battles raging in Berlin, in Munich, across, you know, most of the German cities. And the way in which, uh, it's not just the communists and the far right parties that have kind of paramilitary wings. I mean, even the major, you know, the social democrats do and the. Yeah. Everybody the has kind, a paramilitary yeah. wing. Absolutely. So they've all, we, we talked a tiny bit in the, in the first episode about the army came back brutalized, I suppose you would say, inured to violence after the, the trenches. Of course, the war doesn't, the fighting doesn't actually end for all the Germans in November 1918. So there are still German units fighting in the utter chaos of the East, in the Baltic and so on, where everything has completely fallen apart. All borders have been erased and it's sort of, everything's up for grabs. So this is the Freikorps, these sort of, they're kind of freebooter units. Yeah. You know, they're wearing German army uniforms, but they're kind of doing, going off and, and doing their own thing. They all come back in the 1920s and there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of men who actually enjoyed fighting, who liked the camaraderie, the sense of belonging. Well, that's what the far right is all about, isn't it? It's the idea that men should get out there and fight. And that's what Darwinism yeah. tells you. That's, that's what nature is. So I suppose you could you could trace trace it back, couldn't you, to the sort of social Darwinism, the em- emphasis on struggle. I think that plays a part. Obviously, the experience of the First World War plays a massive part, and and those two things flow together with the experiences of all these young men into this 
sort of culture in the 1920s of war. There's no other way of putting it. Everybody, lots of people wearing uniforms. Yeah. And a constant talk of smashing, crushing, um, you know, all of that sort of stuff, that rhetoric. But also the fact that on the left as well, you have the prospect of violent revolution is absolutely seen as a good. So on both sides, the extremes of both, there is an appetite for violence, not as something, you know, a regrettable necessity, but as something absolutely to be celebrated and stoked. Yeah. I suppose the paramilitary leagues are the kind of institutionalization of that. And as you said, each party has one. So there's a veterans group called the Steel Helmets. This is massive. I mean, hundreds of thousands of members. They join the Steel Helmets. The Steel Helmets. And the Steel Helmets are the, the, the kind of the helmets that the Germans wore in the First yeah, World War. The yeah. First World War. So they're the helmets we associate with World War II, but they are, they are wearing them in the, at the end of the First World War. The Steel Helmets are, I suppose, n- vaguely nominally neutral, but they're not there. They end up being drawn to the far right. Um, the nationalists have their fighting leagues. The communists have what's called the Red Front Fighting League. The Nazis, of course, have the stormtroopers, so they're wearing their brown shirts, the Sturmabteilung. I mean, initially, they were called something like the gymnastics and sports section because <laughs> that was yes. an attempt to get around the get around the law. Yeah, But, you know, as you said, the Social Democrats. So this is the party of Weimar. The party that was the biggest party in Germany, that has created this new republic, that is kind of the left-wing party, the, the Labour Party, if you like, they have their own parliamentary group, the Reichsbanner Schwarz-Rot-Gold. So, you know, the, the everybody paramilitary politics is part of Weimar. From so the that's very not beginning. good, is it? That's that's no. not that's not contributing to the stability of the system. Um, and then you have the economy. Yes. So, had, if you'd had all that. Could you still have survived? Maybe. I mean, well, maybe because, the because econ- the, it's the economy stupid. If yeah. you have a, if if people are, are are rich and stable, they don't have a stake in pulling things down, do they? Right. Yeah. The less people care about politics, the better. Nineteen twenties Germany is a very very intensely politicized um, society. When people are moaning about apathy in politics, I always think, <laughs> yeah. you know, be careful what you wish for because <laughs> they definitely weren't apathetic in Weimar Germany. And of course, one reason they're not apathetic is because they're, I mean, their living standards are being destroyed. So as you said in the first podcast, the Germans had been borrowing a lot of money to pay for World War One. So prices had doubled between And the plan was that they would recoup this from reparations from their enemies when they won. Yeah. Unfortunately, they don't win. So inflation is now absolutely through the roof. They have borrowed and printed so much money that they haven't basically earned to pay for the war. And now they're having to to borrow it and to um, and to print it to pay for the reparations because of course no sane government wants to raise taxes on Germans to give to the French and the British because yeah. then you really are you do look like a terrible traitor and November yeah. criminal and stuff so to give you a sense of I mean inflation it, it can sound so abstract of course these days to, to a lot of people listening to this podcast it won't seem abstract without uh, without we're living with inflation at ten percent but in 19, August 1922, to buy one US dollar, it took you 1,000 marks. By December 1922, it took you 7,000 marks. Then something terrible happens to Germany. Because they're slow in repaying their reparations, the French, because they haven't been handing over all the coal they should have done, occupy the main industrial region of Germany, the Ruhr. They send in troops. Some of them are, are black colonial troops, aren't they? Right. Some of them are, you know, Senegalese and whatnot, African troops. So that doesn't go down well with the uh, with the far right. 
Not at all. The Germans are extremely, extremely displeased with this. There's a great boost, actually, for the Nazi Party and for other far-right nationalist parties. But that the French um, intervention in the Ruhr coincides with basically the total implosion of the German economy and inflation becoming hyperinflation. And it's actually, it's so vast, it's impossible to comprehend. So I said a dollar had been a thousand marks in August 1922. By July 1923, to buy $1, it takes you 353,000 marks. And just to go through the numbers, it's laughable. August, it's a million and a half marks. To buy $1 in September 1923, 98 million marks. October, I think that's 25 billion, is it, Tom? Yeah. The numbers are... Lots of noughts. So many noughts, you can't count them up. Well, let's count. So 42, 1, 2, 3, <laughs> 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 noughts. Yeah. So this is the fa- all the famous stuff that everyone knows about. Pete Wheelbarrow's full of money. In Richard Evans's book, he says, basically, you would go into a, a, a cafe and you'd order a cup of coffee for 5,000 marks. And when you, if you stay there for an hour for too long, you might ask for the bill and it's eight, it's gone up to 8,000 marks in the intervening period. And the other is the price of bread. So to buy some bread, um, at the beginning of the year, it would cost you 163 marks. But by the end of the year, it cost you 233 billion marks. And so as, as people will know from, you know, the much less severe manifestations of inflation at the moment, this tends to pauperize people. If you've got savings, it, it, it eliminates yeah. them. But it's also, it's kind of like hemlock rising up the body. So the working classes get pauperized and then the middle classes start to get pauperized. I mean, again, this is part of the current of, um, you know, the, the image of Weimar decadence is middle class girls going out and working as prostitutes or barmaids or something. And th- th- this is kind of the world of Otto Dix, the great artist, war veteran who comes back and is, is, is painting scenes of middle class degradation. And again, Michael Burley has this, he makes this brilliant point that um, this is a society where your occupation and your title are listed in the telephone directory. So it is a very status obsessed society. So when you have to start enduring humiliations as someone who's not used to them, that's going to radicalize you. Oh, absolutely. I always think, Tom, we were talking before about what it would have been like to be a German before the First World War. I always think about um, Thomas Mann. Uh, the writer, I mean, the sort of people he wrote, writes about in his great book, Buddenbrooks, which is set a bit earlier, um, set in Lübeck. This sort of res- incredibly respectable. Solid. Yeah. Burgerlich. Yeah, exactly. These people who are incredibly serious, sober, sort of Protestant virtues, um, they take their respectability so seriously. You know, imagine you've had a brother or a son or father killed in the trenches in the Great War, in a war that you thought was just. You've lost the war. The Kaiser is gone, everything you believed in. Now you're losing your savings. You're, you've got a family member, as you said, you know, has turned to dodgy methods to, yeah. to make ends meet. You're terrified about crime. I mean, this is a society obsessed with crime. Yeah. All those great German expressionist films of the 1920s. Dr. Caligari and all that. Dr. Caligari, M, serial yeah. killers, speculators, fraudsters, all of those kinds of things. There is, I mean, we talked in the first episode about the obsession with medicalization, with pests, with plagues, with germs. Rats. So that's on your mind the whole yeah. time. And so you are asking who's to blame? 
where are these, you know, exactly. where, where has, where has this disease, this plague come from? Who's responsible for it? Yeah. So the anti-Semitism that we talked about in episode one. So it was on the fringes then. It was, it has seeped into some aspects of mainstream politics. You know, the Kaiser and the Chancellor Bethmann Holweg were, they, they had read anti-Semitic tracts, but anti-Semitism is not yet this sort of commanding motif of political life, but definitely by the 19, mid 1920s, the idea of the November traitors, a Jewish conspiracy of Jewish speculators. Mm. So the Jews are simultaneously in this, in this world, Bolshevik subversives and rich, you know, financial speculators. And again, you can see elements of that in other cultures, can't you? I always think about those, um, very first Agatha Christie books yeah. from the 1920s. John Buchan or Bulldog Drummond, that kind of weird paranoia. But I mean, also just to repeat though, it's not just the Jews who are being blamed. It's, it's the whole political establishment. And again, I suppose there's a kind of echo of that in the way that, um, people today don't necessarily blame one or either of the parties for it. They blame Westminster. They blame yeah. you know, the whole crew of politicians. They're all Americans frauds. blaming Washington. Yes, Washington. Yeah. I think that instinct is always there in any democracy, no matter how healthy. And in fact, you could argue there is a kind. It, it can be quite a healthy sign. The kind of the country distrust of the Whigs in the 18th century. You know, their corrupt cabal with their fricassees and their ragouts. Tom, as you will remember yeah, from the sinister. podcast we did about uh, beef and liberty. You know, there's always a distrust of the centre. And of the political elite. With their yogurts. <laughs> their yogurt drinks, exactly. Yeah. But of course, in 1920s Weimar Germany, it is turbocharged beyond anything that anybody had ever seen in, in Britain. So the inflation actually does come to an end. One of the other great politicians of the Weimar Republic, so Friedrich Ebert is one, a chap called Gustav Stresemann. He's not a social democrat, he's a liberal. He takes over in August 1923. He introduces a new currency called the Rentenmark to stabilize things. He also says, listen, we, we can't have this situation, this shambles where we're not paying our reparations to the, to the allies. And so they are just punishing us and making life impossible. He basically does a deal. He says he will get the French, he gets the French to withdraw from the Ruhr. And in return, Germany will fulfill its obligations. But he says, we all agree these are completely unfair. If we show the allies in good faith that we will make the payments, that will give us the kind of political capital, if you like, to renegotiate. And actually, it works because the allies do amend the terms in something called the Dawes Plan. But it's, it's a sophisticated argument, isn't it? Uh, in an age yeah. when people aren't necessarily up for taking on board sophisticated arguments. Well, imagine you, you think you've been wronged and yeah. somebody says, listen, the way to deal with this is to continue paying the guy, the people you think have wronged you. And eventually they'll be kind to you. I mean, you're, you're maybe not going to listen to that. Now, I think Stresemann obviously was completely right to do what he did. But if you're a right-wing German nationalist, you are outraged. Well, specifically, if you're a, a Mr. A. Hitler, yeah, you're not, you're not going to buy it, are you? So Hitler's been in Munich all this time. Uh, his party is getting bigger. Well, and he is getting more and more impatient. So let's, let's have a break. And when we come back, let's look at how that impatience is manifesting itself. What happens? We'll see you in a few minutes. Bye-bye.
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History, a part two of episode two of our uh, account of the rise of the Nazis. But, Dominic, we're in, let's say, late summer 1923. Uh, You've been setting the scene in the broader context of Weimar Germany. But with the Nazis, we're still very much in Munich, right? I mean, they haven't really kind of spread beyond that. Uh, And even in the context of Munich, they're, you know, they're a faction. Um, so how large are they? What's Hitler's position vis-a-vis the other Nazis? What's going on with them? So the Nazis now are very much Hitler's party. Um, since 1921, Hitler's been the, the, the embodiment of the Nazi message. The, he is the, the leader of the party. Because that's the thing, isn't it? He's not a representative politician in his own lights. He's the embodiment. He is, but he's still only the drummer. Remember, we entered the last podcast by talking about how Hitler sees himself as the drummer, as John the Baptist. One day there will be a national revolution and Germany will be, you know, great again. And is he thinking this because um, the year before Benito Mussolini has led the march on Rome? And so Hitler has, has the example of what a national leader could be. Is that a big influence on him? I think it's massive. Mussolini is an enormous influence on Hitler. So Hitler, it's probable, I would say, reading the biographies of Hitler. I mean, we can't, how can we tell what's going on in Hitler's head? But it is probable that the March on Rome in October 1922 begins to change Hitler's sense of what is possible for him to do. So actually, the big sort of, if you were a betting man, you would, in 1922, you would have said the most likely standard bearer for the far right will be General Ludendorff. So one of the two men who had run 
Germany at the end of the First World War. He's briefly gone into exile. He'd come back. He's the architect of the stab in the back, November criminals kind of lie. And he has since moved to the far right, and he's ended up in Munich. So Ludendorff as this sort of war, wartime leader. He seems the obvious person. But as you say, Mussolini is a former journalist. He's a former nobody, really, mm-hmm. a bit like Hitler. Uh, also fr- fr- kind of from the left. Has moved come to the from right. left and moved to the right. Yeah. Um, fascism, Italian fascism and Nazism have lots of similarities, emphasis on violence, distrust of parliamentarianism, sense of victimhood, salutes, nationalism. Well, I mean, the Nazis are copying, deliberately copying yeah. the salutes, the, the, the goose-stepping, all these kinds of things from the Italians. Uh, the eagles, the standards, also the idea of seizing power. Um, so Mussolini, I mean, the March on Rome in October 1922 is much mythologized, but at the end of it, Mussolini is the Duce, the leader. And so the idea of a March on Berlin is, is, is a, I mean, that kind of idea is floating around far right circles as you get into 1923. So in October 1923, Hitler actually gives an interview with, of all papers, um, he gives an interview to the Daily Mail in which he says, if a German Mussolini were given to Germany, the people would kneel down and worship him more than Mussolini has ever been worshipped. At this stage, does Hitler think of himself as the German Mussolini? It's not clear. The idea must be taking shape in his I mind. I don't think you'd say that without at least the kind of yeah. glimmering of a kind of hunch that it might be. Agreed. Agreed. So the road to his attempted seizure of power, such a strange and complicated story. Munich is basically being run by a triumvirate, a right-wing triumvirate. There's a guy called Gustav Ritter von Kahr who runs the government. Colonel von Seisser runs the police. General von Lossow runs the army. And they, they're running Munich. And they, it seems, by the end of 1923 or the, the second half of 1923, they have their own plan to topple the Weimar Republic and set up a nationalist directorate um, in Berlin. They're outraged by Stresemann's concessions to end the hyperinflation. They sort of get involved with this sort of three-cornered plot with Hitler and the Nazis on the one hand and General Ludendorff on the other. And each each of these three parties, I think, thinks they're using the others and that they're the people who will basically... Well, this will be a running theme of Nazi history. Everybody thinks they're using everybody else, exactly. The terrible mistake that people keep making with the Nazis. They talk to the army in Berlin, and the head of the army in Berlin says, no, I'm not really up for this. So at that point, the guys in Munich, the Munich Authority people, they say, well, you know, we're not going to do this either then. Yeah, no point. Hitler is sort of conscious that... He stoked everything up and for the last year or so. And there's all this outrage about the hyperinflation and about the French and the Ruhr and reparations. That if he doesn't act, if he doesn't make the great gesture, then his support, people will say, well, he's all, he's all talk. Yeah. You know, no action. And so he and Ludendorff decide, well, we'll force the issue. They know that on the 9th of November, which is the fifth anniversary of the outbreak of the German revolution in, in 1918, they know that uh, Carr, the boss of the Munich government, basically, he's going to be addressing a meeting in the Bürgerbräu Keller in Munich, which is this sort of citizen's brewery cellar. And he'll be shouting about November traitors and all this sort of stuff, which he is doing. Carr is doing that. The, the, the triumvirate are there. That evening, Hitler bursts in with a load of guys in brown shirts. It's just this stormtroopers, his kind of paramilitary wing, little paramilitary wing, and uh, General Ludendorff. It's complete chaos in the room. 
Hitler takes out his revolver, which is a Browning, and he shoots a bullet into the ceiling. And he says, the building is surrounded. You know, my brown shirts are here. This is the moment. He, he takes the triumvirate away and he says to them, listen, I, I, I'm forcing the issue. We're marching on Berlin. I'll be the head of the, the cabinet, the head of government. Ludendorff will be the head of the army. And von Kahr, the guy who's been running Bavaria, um, you can be the head of state as a regent for the Kaiser. You see, there's still a lot of monarchism around, actually. It's really interesting how long that lingers. They all say, fine, all right, whatever. They go back in, talk to the crowd. Hitler gives a great speech, shouts about the Berlin Jew government, says, you know, this is the end of it. This very sort of st- oh, stirring is not the right word with Adolf Hitler. Um, very um, Well, but in a sense it is, isn't it? I mean, he does stir people up. He does rouse people. So. He does yeah. make people feel that, you know, he makes their blood race faster. And yes. All, all right. that kind of stuff. Fair enough. He says, let's say it's stirring. He says, I can say this to you. Either the German revolution begins tonight or we'll all be dead by dawn. You know, it's quite sort of people are all cheering and shouting. Then an absolute shambles unfolds. Hitler and the Nazis go off into the city determined to capture the barracks and the police headquarters and all this. And it's a complete disaster. They don't actually capture any of them. None of the army, none of the police join them at all. Meanwhile, back in the beer cellar, total ludicrous scenes. Ludendorff, who's a military man, says to the, the Munich triumvirate, they say, can we go? You know, we give you our word. We'll still support the, the coup. <laughs> Scout's honour. <laughs> and, yeah, and he says, oh, well, if you give me your word, of course. They go. <laughs> they go and immediately repudiate the coup completely and say, we have nothing to do with this. It's completely against our will. And they send all, orders to all the army units. Do not listen to Hitler and the Nazis and Ludendorff at all. So basically, by by dawn, Hitler is not dead. Nobody is dead. Hitler and co. have trooped back rather miserably and forlornly to the beer cellar, where Ludendorff, looking like a fool, is is waiting for them. And they say, well, this this is, hasn't gone well at all. Do they have a drink? But I assume the drink's half. You'd assume. You'd be <laughs> demented not to. That. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be mad not to, wouldn't you? I mean, yeah. so Hitler at this stage, I think, is still drinking. I don't think he becomes a teetotaler until right. after he's been in prison. I might be wrong. Um, people who know more about Hitler than I do can can correct me if not, if so. Uh, so they're back in the beer cellar. Their supporters, you know, as dawn breaks, their supporters are kind of drifting away. It's like a party that has run out of yeah. steam. Ludendorff says, well, we have to force the issue. Let's march on the city center. So they do. There are about 2,000 of them by this point. They set off at midday, and they're met by lines of policemen. And what follows is, you know, there's a sort of confrontation, a lot of shouting, and then eventually someone starts shooting. Um, of the leading Nazis, Goering is hit in the leg, and um, Hitler falls and dislocates his, sh- his shoulder. He's quite lucky. Fourteen of the marchers were killed, so Hitler could have been killed, and four policemen are killed. Of the leading Nazis, Goering, who'd been wounded, he goes off to exile. He's married to a Swedish baroness or something, so he goes off to Sweden and becomes a morphine addict. As that a is such of, uh, Goering behaviour. It's very Goering behaviour. Swedish baronesses, morphine, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Hitler goes off to his friend, he's got a friend called Putzi Hanfstengel, who is a sort of a useless right-wing socialite. He goes off to his house and he's arrested on the 11th of November. And um, as every biographer of Hitler says, that absolutely should have been that for Hitler. That should have been the end of his career, this ludicrous, shambolic, failed putsch. However, there is another way of framing it, isn't there? That he had to do something like that 
if he was to make a successful fist of trying to gain power through legitimate de- democratic means, because he had to have demonstrated that he had the courage, the balls, the Führer principle that would enable him to make a bold strike. And it's only having done that that he, that he can, you know, having demonstrated his balls, yeah. as it were, or his ball. Great um, historical punditry <laughs> that's on. Well done. That, that, that he can then adopt the, the democratic approach, do you think? I think it's actually a very astute point. I think it means no one will ever see him as a sellout. Yeah. I mean, I mean he's, he's put he's, his life on the line. Exactly. He's, he's done what he's, you know, he has, he's risked his life for Germany. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, actually. I think that I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's a very astute point that because he's done that and the beer hall is even the beer hall itself, it becomes that becomes, dare I say, a sacral space for the Nazis. Yeah, because it's it's shambolic, it's tawdry, you know, it's pathetic in so many ways, but it provides scope for the mythologization that will happen. And of course, the other thing that happens, am I not right, is that basically his trial provides him with a soapbox because the presiding judge is a sympathizer. Uh, Hitler agrees to carry the can for Ludendorff, who kind of sidles off. And he's given this, you know, he takes the stand and just has it, you know, has a rant and makes himself into a public figure. Absolutely right. I mean, actually, go, I'm thinking about your, your point. Mussolini himself didn't do the march on Rome. He stayed behind, um, you know, in a cowardly way to see if it would work. And then went by train. Hitler actually did do this march. And so, and presumably that then also, I mean, all his followers know this. Of course. Of course. He's the corporal who fought in the trenches, who then once again put his body on the line. Absolutely right. The trial, you make a really good point about the trial. The trial should have been held in Leipzig. The Bavarian authorities persuade the government to allow to set up a special court in Munich because basically the Bavarian authorities want to cover up their own sort of half-hearted involvement in the coup. They make sure there's a judge who's a reactionary nationalist who's called Georg Neithart. Um, there's probably, we don't know, but there's probably a deal being done where Hitler says, I'll take all, the, as you said, I'll carry the can completely. Um, he goes in wearing a suit, so he looks kind of not a uniform, but he wears his iron cross to remind everybody he's a decorated war veteran. And And that quotation that you read out at the beginning I mean, he's all talking about the court of history will judge And he me, talks about know. it like that for four hours. I know, four hours. Imagine listening to all yeah. that for four hours. But Hitler's speeches were incredible. They'd be like two-hour speeches normally. Yeah. You know, Hitler would not stop. And if you've ever read, we'll get onto Mein Kampf in a second, but if you've ever read Mein Kampf, it just goes on and on. I mean, I know I'm not one to talk in my books, no. but- <laughs> It's like the worst kind of podcast. It, it's like it's like yeah, <laughs> podcast without our sort of without sense of any, enormous self discipline. Exactly, and without any breaks. Exactly, no yeah. ads, no um, ads. Yeah. So anyway, at the end of all this, Hitler is given a five year sentence, and he is sent off to a place called Landsberg am Lech, which is an ancient kind of fortress. And this, um, Ian Kershaw says, basically, it's less a prison, more a hotel. Which gives you a sort of it's sense. quite posh, so, isn't it? It's where people who've been done for d- fighting duels in the 19th century go and things. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you're a duelist, you get sent to Landsberg <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Hitler has a big apartment there. I mean, it really is like a hotel. Um, in the in the course of his time, so he's there for basically what is it a year or so. Um, so the rest of it is is. And so he's, he's reading. He's, he's reading lots of racists, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> reading racists. <laughs> reading racists. What a hobby! What's yeah. your hobbies? Um, um, yeah. And, so uh, he's reading. He's reading. He reads Nietzsche, Tom. Like you, you've read Nietzsche. I have read Nietzsche. Yes. 
Well, I think we should do an episode on Nietzsche uh, and discuss how Nietzsche tends to get a clear pass from people uh, as an influence on the Nazis. But I think slightly more, more to it. I think there is slightly more to it than that. Yeah. But we'll come That's to interesting. that. Uh, it may be in another episode. But for the purpose of this, he's he's reading books and then he writes one. Yes. So um, a Nazi uh, a Nazi supporter is a publisher called Max Amann. He says, why don't you write a book? And Hitler basically dictates his life story to two other prisoners. So one of them is his chauffeur, a guy called Emil Morris. And the other is his sort of, his poodle, who's Rudolf Hess. I mean, Hess is an absolutely slavish devotee of Hitler's. I mean, Hitler has assembled this sort of group of cronies who think he's brilliant. They love listening to his speeches and they will do anything for him. That's why he even has a chauffeur. I mean, he's living off the largesse. In the 1920s, he's been living off the largesse of wealthy donors. Yeah, but it, but it's also a kind of martyrdom, isn't it? He's suffering this for the cause of Germany, for the cause of history, for these, you know, all these abstract nouns with capital letters. Um, and so the fact that he is in prison, he is a you know, this is paradigmatic suffering, even though he's surrounded by flowers and got all these books and visitors and things. So hence, so hence his struggle. My struggle. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so the two themes of Mein Kampf, which is the book that he writes now, one of them is a very, is the, is the classic old Hitler theme, and it's the hatred of the Jews. And he is absolutely, no one, as, as his biographers say, no one who read Mein Kampf could be, being, could be in the slightest doubt yeah, where his intentions. He says, you know, we will only succeed when the international poisons are exterminated. And he re- refers to them again and again as a virus, as maggots, as a pestilence, as a plague. He talks of annihilating, expelling, all of these kinds of things. The other thing that is more new, however, is the obsession now with Russia. So you don't see that at the beginning, the obsession with Marxism and with Russia. But now he's talking about the end of Russia as a state, about Russia being given over to the German plow. Um, so this sort of Lebensraum idea. And as Richard Evans says, no one who reads this can think that Hitler is just about revising the Treaty of Versailles. Hitler is also about building a new empire in the East, about killing Jews, about turning Slavs into helots and slaves. and and giving Germans living space in the steppes. And before he goes in, before he goes in, you you described him as John the Baptist, and he was obviously playing second fiddle to Ludendorff. But does his experience in prison, his process of self-reflection, the idolization he's getting from all his various followers, is this when he starts to think that perhaps he is the man destined to be the leader, the Führer? Yeah, I think Absolutely. I think when he comes out of uh, Landsberg am Lech, he undoubtedly thinks of himself as the leader now. There's, some, there's something about that experience of maybe the, the putsch, but then the experience of being on trial and being the martyr, and then having these 500 guests with flowers and racist yeah. books that has puffed him up. And he and thinks, so, I, I'm the man of destiny. And so this is why when he comes out, he gets everyone to, he basically refans the Nazi party, doesn't he? And he gets everyone to sign you know, swear an unconditional oath to him. They do. It's, it's an extraordinary scene. Um, Ian Kershaw says, like, medieval vassals swearing undying loyalty to the leader. I mean, they pledge themselves. They pledge fealty to him. And so this is when you start getting the Harl Hitler and Harl Hitler all greeting. Kind of stuff. Yeah. So much more of that. Of course, that's slightly copied on the sort of, he's inherited it from Schoenerer, who we talked about in the first podcast. But it's also all to do with that stuff about knights and a brotherhood. 
And of course, it's also to do with Mussolini and fascism and all the rituals of, of fascism. All these things, these influences flow together to create this Führer cult. And actually, the Führer cult, which seems ludicrous to us and sinister, Ian Kershaw says it's really important because it, it, the Nazis had always been slightly, you know, they'd all been different factions. And yeah, things, well, because it's inherently vociferous, f- isn't it? I mean, you, you, yeah. everyone knows this about kind of uh, eccentric political sects on the fringes, that they're always splitting up. I mean, that's the whole Judean People's Front joke. Exactly, exactly. But now that they've basically sworn their loyalty to the Fuhrer, to the leader, factionalism, it doesn't come to an end. Of course, there'll be more factionalism to come. But there's a kind of coherence there. This is the message. This is the guy. End of story. But isn't, isn't there are, also... We are walking with destiny. Something else that Hitler has, has got from this is this idea that there, there can be no march on Berlin because it hasn't worked. It won't work. And therefore, there's this idea that he will destroy democracy through democratic means. Yeah, you're absolutely right, which is a chilling thing and has been a chilling thing ever since. Well, that's why, what makes him so unsettling for people living in right. a democracy that, to this day. That all democracies have to contend with, that what happens when you have somebody who doesn't play by the rules? Yeah. And so what is the state of, of the Weimar democracy by this point? So well, what, kind of 19, early 1925? 19, yeah. So now we have a series of steps. We're going to have them in the last few minutes of this podcast and then particularly in the next episode a series of steps whereby the guardians of the Weimar Republic, the very people who should be protecting it, start to dismantle it, start to sign, in some cases, to sign their own death warrants. The first moment, it's it's bad luck. It's really bad luck. Friedrich Ebert, the president, the guy who was synonymous with Weimar. So the Clement Attlee of, of Weimar. Exactly. The Clement Attlee, as I described him. He dies of appendicitis. He's neglected it too long. He's under tremendous pressure, horrendous abuse in the newspapers. He neglects it. He dies of appendicitis. Um, this is a disaster for Weimar. They then have a presidential election. Uh, Ludendorff actually runs. He gets 1%. Um, you know, yeah, that's really badly. Well. That's the end of him. But his partner in the First World War, his sort of dictatorial partner, Paul von Hindenburg, who is this sort of, he looks like he's been chiseled out of a massive Prussian, kind of Prussian walrus. Yeah, Prussian walrus, massive moustache, giant head. I imagine completely. he wears a helmet with a spike in the he bath. Da- yeah, he's, he's like a, a square man yeah. who's been cut out of wood. Very reactionary, very, you know, monarchist, doesn't really believe in Weimar. He actually seeks permission from the Kaiser before he throws his president. hat in the presidential yeah. ring. He doesn't even run the first round. He's co-opted, runs in the second round. He's 78 years old. He becomes the president of Germany. And he and his circle, so he's surrounded by kind of cronies, particularly army advisors. None of them are keen on democracy. None of them are keen on Weimar. They're basically itching to destroy it. That is a disaster for Weimar. Meanwhile, the Nazis, so these are the supposedly the golden years of the Weimar Republic, the last years, because the inflation is over, the economy is doing a little bit better. The Nazi party is actually, although it's very small, it's beginning to grow. And and, and the key thing that it does is that it, it moves out. Of, so it's been in Munich, in Bavaria, which is very, very, as you all know, Tom, very, very Catholic, mm-hmm. and where institutionally there's a lot of kind of, there's ob- an obvious resistance to Hitler's message, because the Catholic Church is very strong. Well, because Munich is a, M- Munich is a kind of a, it, it's an island of political turbulence, surrounded by 
Catholic peasantry, basically. Yes. But what they start to do is to build support in the Protestant north of Germany. Which they have to do, don't they, if they're going to become national, because there are far more Protestants in Germany than, than Catholics. Agreed. There's a, so a key figure here is a man called Gregor Strasser. He's, he's sort of Hitler's ideological rival, if you like, mm. in the Nazi party. He's the, uh, he's the other guy who's clever. He's certainly cleverer than... But um, not a, in the long run a good thing to be. No. An no, ideological rival to Hitler in the Nazi party. Not at all. He's a brilliant organiser. He's a brilliant administrator. He's been sort of building it up while Hitler was in prison. And when he goes around North Germany, Strasser... He he emphasizes the socialism as well as the national. Yeah. So he talks to industrial working because it's a very industrial in North Germany. And he talks to people there and he says, you know, we'll do, you'll have higher wages, you'll have better living standards, we'll protect your working conditions, all this stuff. So he he's the guy really who brings in Goebbels, Joseph Goebbels. Goebbels is from the industrial Rhineland. He's better Catholic. He is a Catholic. Yeah. He has a PhD from Heidelberg on romantic drama. Yeah. Would you believe? I didn't know what Goebbels was a doctor of, and it seems very implausible. Um, but he's quite bohemian, Goebbels, and he had actually been drawn to the far left and the far right. He'd read Marx. Um, he gets in with Strasser. He's a well, very good propagandist. So, so I mean, people say two things about Goebbels' sense of theatrical. Yeah. And you say you know, romantic drama. Firstly, that he's Catholic, so there's the sense of the, you know, the, uh, the, the church display and all that kind of stuff. But secondly, precisely that he is, he, he comes from this theatrical milieu, that he... In a sense, yeah. he, the Nazis end up making Germany a stage for incredible pageantry and swagger. And that yes. is obviously part of the appeal of the Nazis is that, you know, they're not boring in terms no, of their not. projection. And no. Goebbels is brilliant at that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Of course, you really need to watch Triumph of the Will, Lenny Riefenstahl's yeah. film, to know that they're not boring. Um, but what Strasser and Goebbels do... They're very good at broadening its appeal to, to actually quite boring people. So particularly farmers, um, the sort of people in the countryside in North Germany, there's an agricultural depression. But Goebbels goes to Berlin though, doesn't he? So he becomes the Gauleiter in Berlin. Yeah, but much later on. That's, um, that's later, is it? Right. Yeah. At the moment, he's sort of torn between Strasser and, um, yeah. and Hitler a little bit. Uh, but what they're doing, they're launching recruiting drives in, in these sort of rural places, Schleswig-Holstein, Oldenburg. So even though they do really badly, generally, the Nazis in the 1928 Reichstag elections, they win less than 3% of the vote. They only get 12 deputies. Strasser is one. Goebbels is one. Goering is one. They actually do. They're doing better and better in these kind of Protestant agriculture. So, so what regions. are they offering? What's the pitch? So the pitch is we will the pitch is we will listen to you and nobody else is listening. I mean the Social Democrats are a city party. Um the Nationalists, the right wing party, they are a, a bigwigs establishment, rich people's party, middle class party. Um the Nazis are saying they they're rebranding themselves as a genuinely national party with something for everybody, and particularly for those who've been left behind. And the the sort of Protestant countryside feels like it has been left behind. They say we'll set up farmers cooperatives. Uh, we'll do all things. We'll, we'll take farmers seriously. Um, so they are reaching out to farmers and people like them, craftsmen, artisans, shopkeepers, the self-employed. Um, and they're saying, you know, we'll make Germany great again. We'll listen to you. We'll, we'll put the economy on an even keel. You'll be better paid, but you'll feel proud to be German again. No one feels proud to be German anymore. They particularly have a, they have a strong appeal, by the way, to young people. Because, of course, if you're young, 
if you didn't live through, if you didn't fight in the first world yeah. war, you have a slight sense of guilt, and you and you wish you you'd done it, you missed out on it, but you've also been through crisis after crisis. A, a good example of that is a young man, very a, a bright young man, um, who was born in Munich. His father was a Catholic school teacher. Who's born in nineteen hundred, never got to see action in the first world war. Um, clever, studded after the first world war, sucked into the far right scene, and he's Heinrich Himmler. So Himmler, I mean, who most of us would regard as one of the most sinister men who's ever lived, he joined the Nazi party in 1925. He Hero worships Hitler. I mean, Himmler brings to the table all of these enthusiasms, doesn't he? Well, all the um, kind of mad occult stuff and everything. Yeah. yeah. Herbalism. The Thule Society. Runes, all of that. And also very, very radical racism. I mean, it seems weird to say this of such an, a, a, a wicked man. There is an idealism to Himmler. I mean, he worships Hitler. He thinks, as a well, young man, well, he thinks this is the the route to the utopia. This is everything is rubbish of, and tawdry. Of course, of course, because the Nazis don't see themselves as evil. The Nazis see themselves doing what is right for Germany and for their race. And yeah. you have to make that leap of trying to see them as they see themselves, or else you won't understand the nature of their appeal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they uh, don't see themselves as wicked. No, they don't even see that. I mean, certainly they don't see their anti-Semitism as wicked. No, because it's they see it as being for the good of the German people. Yeah. But of course, at this point, they are small. They're still a fringe party. Um, they, they, they are growing in, in these sort of um, Protestant rural areas, but they're still a long way from being a major party. I mean, the big parties are in a grand coalition, actually, the Social Democrats, the Catholic Centre Party, and um, the Liberal sort of Democrats Party. Um, and, there's, and there's no reason at that point, nobody in sort of 1928 or so seriously thinks that within five years, the Nazis will be the masters. Okay, well, shall, I, shall we leave today's episode with a passage from Richard Evans? Yeah, go for it, Tom. Okay. It would need a catastrophe of major dimensions if an extremist party like the Nazis was to gain mass support. In 1929, with the sudden collapse of the economy in the wake of the stock exchange crash in New York, it came. Goodbye. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.